to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Calling us from New York City area, we have two gentlemen on the phone. We have Dr. Darren Porcher and also Joseph Imperatrice. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so much for being guests on the show. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having us. By the way, I'm going to do my best, Joseph, not to butcher your last name. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so I might just call you Joseph. That way it will spare me a lot of embarrassment. Uh, and number that, that, two. That works for me. Uh, <laughs> Doc, I don't know the call you. Doctor, Doc, Darren, Mr. Porcher, or, or Lieutenant. What do I call you? King for short is fine. <laughs> I'll just call you Darren. How's that? We've seen both of these guys on Fox News, all kinds of news outlets. They both come from a law enforcement background. And for those who don't know, Joseph is the founder or one of the founders of Blue Lives Matter in New York City. And let's do this. Just go with you, Doc, first. Darren, just give people a little bit of information about your background, about five minutes. Well, it's going to take longer than five minutes, Jay. I mean, you background, this is a 30-minute segment, but, you know, I'll cut it down. My goal is to suck all of the oxygen out of the room <laughs> so that way Joey and Paratrice can't get on and say anything. No, I, I'm a former NYPD lieutenant. I worked in the NYPD for 20 years. Did a multitude of different things from undercover work, being a supervisor, training recruits in the academy. And then after leaving the police department, I got my doctorate degree from Fordham University. And I testify as an expert witness in criminal and civil cases all over the country, coupled with uh, imparting information on terminal issues in criminal justice on the major networks, more so particularly Fox News. We see you there all the time, and many oh, times. Oh, and another thing, which is very important, I also have a podcast, Crossing the Line, whereas the great Joseph Imperatrice and myself, we speak to a lot of the topical issues in criminal justice. So it's called Crossing the Line. Crossing the Line. All right. Is there a website or just uh, social media, or do you look it up on Apple Podcast or what? Well, Joe, you give them the best. Yeah, for the, time, for the time being, what it is, it premieres every Friday night, 7 p.m. You could see on Darren's page, which is his name, uh, Darren Porter, mine, Joseph Imperatrice. You have Strike TV, that's the media group that actually produces all this for us. And uh, it's every single Friday night, 7 p.m. We get some great guests. Pretty much the segments that me and Darren, when we go on Fox, we can only put like 30 to 45 seconds for our time into. This, we're able to put a grasp and we're able to bring people from the outside coming in, not not just from law enforcement to get their points of view as as well because you got to think outside the box you can't just have it one way no we can't have a one-way conversation and that's part of the reason why i founded the law enforcement show a long time ago because quite honestly and i say this all the time to law enforcement we have relied on the news media to tell our stories for far too long and they've always done a bad job they've always done an incomplete job and now it's so biased that if we don't start telling our stories no one's going to know and shame on us for not doing anything about it that's why we're here <laughs> joseph give us a little bit of background about your career 
So I have 14 years in law enforcement. The difference between you know me and a lot of people that you see that speak on the news is I'm still active. I'm able to speak on behalf of Blue Lives Matter NYC. So as Darren will say, I still have boots on the ground. From the guys who have tons of experience like Darren to all the other gentlemen that are so great on the media. A lot of these guys are retired for a long time and I'm still right in the mix of it, being able to see what I see, what I hear, what I feel, it's great. Founded Blue Lives Matter NYC after the death of Detectives Ramos and Lou uh, in December 20, 2014. And fast forward, and in the matter of a little over five years, we're approaching $2 million raised to a 501c3 nonprofit organization, not just in New York City, but we help cops all over the nation. Never expected that it ever boost me into the political spotlight that um, it's become. And because of it, I'm able to be on shows like this, speaking to you and Darren, uh, trying to show a a very honest way that a lot of people don't see and don't hear and don't feel too often. And I thank you both for A, your service, and B, for what you're doing. Because in the current climate, there's definitely, I don't care how you want to spin it, there's definitely an anti-police movement across the United States. So, Joseph, you being still on the job, you got to be catching it there. And then when either one of you are in the media talking, I'm sure you get a lot of backlash as well. You do, and you know what? You kind of get it. You, you might not believe it, but you get it from both sides. You get it from the freedom fighters that are out there that are either in the military or police officers as well, that they, they think that because they have an opinion, which is great, that their opinion alone behind the keyboard is going to change things, and it doesn't. So, you, like myself, I got fed up with just the way I saw things early on. My career started with Detective Russell Timoshenko, 23 years old, July 9, 2007, being shot and killed, and I always wanted to do something. And I noticed that just being mad and just screaming at a TV and seeing the newspapers, it doesn't change anything. So you need a lot of hard work, you need a lot of dedication, and you need to be able to go against the grain because a lot of people are willing to knock you down. As a riot, we see a lot of these Antifa guys emailing us, telling us they wish we'd die, that we're punks, that, you know, stop complaining because if you don't want to be a police officer and deal with what you had to, you've just given your gun and shield, and a lot of ignorance and nonsense. So you got to have a tough skin. you got to see the prize at the end of the uh, the race and just keep on going and know that God has a plan. And if he wants you to be that vessel, just keep on riding until the end of the show. One of the things, my wife, who I met years after retiring, and unfortunately, I'm one of those typical casualties. My first marriage ended in divorce uh, due in large part to my inability to handle things from my police career better. That was a large part of the problem. But one of the things we talked about just the other day is I'm used to working in a field of adversity. And I've been retired for a long time. So when people make death threats or people threaten me, and I get it on our Facebook page, uh, the Law Enforcement Radio Show, I get it in emails all the time. And what I always tell her is anybody can talk tough. Anybody can talk tough, especially behind a keyboard from the comfort and safety of their own their, their lazy boy or their mom's basement. So I'm not overly impressed with those. Uh, and and everybody could talk tough when you're on the streets. Death threats were part of how what we did every day. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, Jay, I, like yourself, I had to start a wife at one point, and then we fort- fortunately were able to revolutionize out of the start a wife and go into something else. I'm not married right now, but 
one of the things that Joe mentioned in terms of, you know, these keyboard gangsters, so to speak, they talk a tough game from behind the computer, but when you're in the street, it's a different narrative. I mean, we do this from, from a place of passion, from the heart. So if I speak to topical issues in connection with criminal justice, this is based on my experience as a practitioner. I've seen and done this stuff over my 20-year period in the NYPD. I was an undercover. I was a detective. I was a supervisor. I performed a multitude of different functions as a member of the NYPD, and oftentimes I impart my experiences on national television. And, you know, you there's some blowback, there's some pushback, but hey, look, this kind of comes with the position. I, I want to say that I've become somewhat desensitized to it as I've been doing this for a number of years. And I just really focus on how I can get the appropriate message out there to the guys that are the quote-unquote boots on the ground like Joseph and Peritrice in the NYPD. And they can understand that there are people that are behind you because this is the time blue is not popular. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Dr. Darren Porcher and Joseph Imperatrice from NYC, uh, Blue Lives Matter NYC. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? We're all busy. We've got busy lives, but there's something oh so simple you can do with our Facebook page. Search for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. And when you see a post you agree with that resonates with you, share it, especially episodes of the podcast. To do all that, just search for us on Facebook, look for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, and be sure to click like. Back to our conversation with Dr. Darren Porcher and Joseph Imperatrice. One's active duty NYPD, the other one's retired NYPD. Darren, we're going to start this conversation with you. There's a term that I hear all the time, and I'll be honest with you, it drives me batty because it, it's used at in corporate all types of police use of force, and that turns police brutality. I've not yet heard a term where there's criminal brutality or brutality by criminals. Uh, so I know that's fueling a lot of the anti-police movement. What's your take on that? Well, the police use of force is something that naturally coincides with police work. We use, as police officers, the minimum amount of force necessary to take someone into custody. Now, that can be subjective depending upon the encounter that you're a part of. But the use of force oftentimes becomes villainized with the term police brutality. And there's a distinct difference between a police use of force and a police brutality and a level of police brutality. When I think police brutality, I think on alliance of police misconduct. By and large, what I see is not police misconduct that fits into the purview of police brutality, which is something that's subsequently charged in a court of law against the officer. The average officer doesn't set forth on a path to victimize or brutalize someone that's in the street. However, people from a pedestrian sense oftentimes view these encounters of whenever an officer touches someone, it's an aspect of police brutality. But we need to be realists. We need to look at this from the perspective of what it is. That same police officer that is using a level of force to restrain an individual is doing that from the mindset of protecting society. It's not overrunning someone, but it's merely using whatever force is necessary to quell or 
take that person into custody accordingly by using the minimal level of force. Therefore, it becomes somewhat hyperbolic when we hear that term police brutality. Now, my good friend, Joseph Imparachis, he can give you his perspective because he's an active duty sergeant working in the NYPD and dealing with these riots and demonstrations that have been plaguing our society as a result. See, Darren, the second you go on the street, the cameras come out, and the second officer has to go out there and put someone in handcuffs, you see, hear the person screaming, you know, he's using excessive force, we're going to sue him, how dare him, don't lock him up. But like you said, the, the whole police brutality, the whole let's go out there and fight for justice, it doesn't happen nearly as much as what these individuals out there are claiming. I'm still active. I see firsthand they're shooting every single night. Now, I'm not just talking about one or two, but I'm talking about anywhere from 6 to 15 just on an overnight in New York City. That doesn't include the other two tours throughout the day. And factual numbers are the majority are people of color between the ages of 18 to their mid to late 20s, and not one person from Black Lives Matter is going to march and talk about how their life really does matter to society. There was a one-year-old baby boy, and, and this hits home for me two weeks ago, shot and killed in New York City. My son is two and a half. There's no place for gun violence in general, let alone having a one-year-old lose their life. But where the hell are Al Sharptons and the, you know, the Hawk Newsoms and the Black Lives Matter movement, where are they? You know, where are all these white people holding up these signs saying Black Lives Matter? Where are they? Because it doesn't matter. It's something that gains traction. It's something to say, well, the police officers are going out there and just murdering people of color, which is completely false. And if we had strong leadership to stand up and say, you guys are out of your mind, factually, this does not happen. We have the evidence and the numbers to show and prove that we've documented, and we're going to stop this. And if you go out there and you cause and havoc and you're riot and you start lighting cop cars on fire, well, guess what? You're going to be locked up and it's not going to be for a few hours. But it's going to be for a, a long period of time. And that's when we're going to start seeing things stop in the narrative end. One of the easiest ways for me to compare from my police experience to what's happening today, first of all, about the only difference I see is we didn't have all the video cameras that we have nowadays. Uh, so the, the cell phones were not available. And use of force was not prevalent. It wasn't something that every arrest didn't involve force. Every arrest didn't involve animosity. As a matter of fact, they were very rare. But when they did occur, they were ugly. And there's just no way to do, use force to arrest someone and, and do it in a pretty manner. There's just no way. It's like the old saying about making sausage. You know, no one wants to see it. No one wants to see police use of force. And they use this new term I see all the time now which is police violence, which also I find very disturbing. You know, uh, as you hit it right on the head, Jay, police use of force is always ugly. But you have to take in consideration that officer is not just protecting themselves in many cases, but a third person. An officer walks into a domestic dispute. There's one party that's assaulting the other party. The officer gives commands and the person is not compliant. Therefore, the officer uses force to separate that individual from continuing to assault their significant other. This is a classic example of police use of force that can always be blown out of proportion. You see what the officer's doing, but oftentimes with these videos, you catch a snippet. You don't see what happened in the beginning. You just see a small snippet of what happened in the middle, and you don't see what happened in the end. It's that comprehensive overview of the situation that vindicates officers in many cases in connection with them using the minimum amount of force. However, you only see the lightning bolts that are introduced, and oftentimes this creates a black eye 
die for officers, but we do the best that we can to soldier forward because we as police officers believe that we are here to assist, assist society as protectors in the wake of move, moving forth the level of um, safety that's necessary for, necessary for citizens. One of the things I was taught early on and we all seen the films, we've seen the movies, we've seen the television shows. They show the old cop stuff. And by the way, Hollywood gets it so far wrong that it's not even remotely close to reality. And one of the things they'll say all the time is cop locks up the suspect and the suspect's all beat up. And they'll say, what happened? He fell down the stairs. And the first thing that was ingrained in me when it came to use of force, without getting into technicalities, if you have to use force, you're always honest, you always document it, and you write down why you use force. We never lied about it. The thing is, too, is people just think officers are taking things in their own hands, right? That's not true. They're taught that if force is presented against you, you use the reasonable amount of force necessary to combat that threat. Now, nobody wants to hear that. You hear the liberals and the Democrats, you know, thinking with the new bill in New York City that every criminal out there is going to turn around when the police officer tells them to and just put their hands behind their back. But anybody who actually lived wearing that uniform going out every single day knows that's not true. That the foot chases, that just like Darren said, going to domestic violence calls, the people in the car that you think he just pulled over for a broken taillight and he's got an illegal firearm or he's wanted to, for homicide or has a massive amount of drugs in the car. Those people are not going to just stand up and say, officer, officer Imperatrice, no problem. Let me put my hands behind my back and not go to jail again because this offense is going to keep me in for life. That doesn't happen. And we don't have enough pushback. We don't have other politicians with common sense, even moderate Democrats, just saying, no, this is public safety. This is not just my family, but the people, our constituents, that we're here to serve and protect and sworn to, you know, upkeep an oath and the Constitution. And it's just so far gone. And another problem with today's day and age is it's all opinionated. Nothing is factual. And that's not a good world to live in because nothing that you're being told is real. Nothing being told is actually what's going on. And that's what's hurting society. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Dr. Darren Porcher and Joseph Imperatrice. I promise you, a lot of great things coming up. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Remember when news was free? Be sure to check out the Newsbreak app. It's free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. That's the free Newsbreak app. Be sure to look for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast. Back to our conversation, we have two guests, Dr. Darren Porcher and Joseph Imperatrice, both from the NYPD. Dr. Darren Porcher is retired and Joseph is still on the job. By the way, please let the commanders know he said thank you for allowing you to talk on the show. I know that doesn't always happen, so it's very much appreciated. One of the biggest problems I have, there's so many problems I have with this whole attitude, this whole anti-police movement that has become, before the break, you mentioned a key point. It's become opinion and emotions and feeling, and it's not based on fact. People are comparing what happens today to what I remember seeing as a kid happening in Selma, Alabama, and they're not the same thing. 
our entire profession has changed entirely since the 60s to what we're at today. But you can't seem, I can't seem to talk logic with someone who just wants to run off emotion. Well, you're right, and, and I'm going to switch it to Darren in a second because he's going to give you a first-hand account of what he experienced two weeks ago on the Brooklyn Bridge. But when you go out there and you see graffiti and it says, the cops, you guys are pigs, we hope you guys die, this has nothing to do with the police brutality that happened with George Floyd at this point. Because you know what? Justice is served for the time being. The four people that were involved in that incident are in jail. They're behind bars, and the system is working. They're off the street to hurt anybody ever again. And I think the first time in American history, the police and the community were all one saying, hey, those officers went over the line. But I want to flip it to Darren, and he'll give you the first-hand account about how this has nothing to do with protests for George Floyd or Black Lives Matter and what he had to deal with on the Brooklyn Bridge a couple weeks ago. You know, Joe, it's interesting. And Jay, you can relate to this. We have a series of opportunists or anarchists that are just coalescing behind anything that's of an anti-police sentiment. I give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I crossed the Brooklyn Bridge with a contingent of clergy members and police sympathizers um, propelling the message of looking for a, a precipitous drop in gun violence and violence that's been plague in New York City. We were echoing these sentiments to the mayor of New York. That's why we walked across the Brooklyn Bridge and it connects you on the Manhattan side in front of City Hall. The mayor, of course, was not there because he was standing, he was signing an anti-police bill for chokeholds, uh, prohibiting chokeholds um, and now criminalizing this. But it, it, it presented someone in an abstract perspective of an officer can no longer touch anywhere on a diaphragm of an individual. But that's another story for another day. But just going back to the anti-police sentiment, we're marching with the clergy and we're looking to gain a reduction in crime. And we still had Black Lives Matter sympathizers that were on that Brooklyn Bridge calling us names. And they even took it a step further and they assaulted the police escorts that we had uniformed cops that were on the Brooklyn Bridge, they assaulted them. We had a lieutenant that had his eye fractured. We even had the chief of the department that had a bone broken. This is the anti-police sentiment that is plaguing our society. We need to understand that police are our first line of defense. When we look at the social contract, it affords protections from government to citizens. But people just don't understand that. It's this rhetoric that's driving a narrative that is catastrophically taking us to a bad place. The quality of life is deteriorating, and as a result, the silent majority is suffering. These cops are not Ku Klux Klansmen that are burning crosses on the front of people's lawns the way it's projected. I'm speaking as an African-American male. There are more, the police departments are more multifaceted with race than ever before. Your cops are not going out there to assault people based on race. But if you hear the narrative coming from Antifa and Black Lives Matter, it's diametrically different. And you know what, though, I want to add to that, because we come from three different generations of police officers, all in this school, right? And I'm the youngest, I'd say Darren, then Jay. And I think we can all agree that we've been around police officers of all different backgrounds, religions, sexual orientations, and I guarantee you none of us ever once in the locker room or while our course of duty heard someone putting on their vest or their gun belt and buttoning up their uniform saying, you know what, I want to go out and violate someone's rights. I want to go out there and kill somebody, you know, someone of color today. I think we could all agree that that whole narrative is completely false, and it's sick for people to even think that it goes on. 
Well, the reality is that they're showing a one-sided picture. When people have these conversations, I go back into my memory, and I remember distinctly having a conversation in Baltimore in the Northwest District when I was still a patrolman before I got promoted sergeant. And I made my side partners, because we were one-man cars, promise me that if I was shot and was dying in the gutter to put me in the back of a wagon, at least let me die there in a clean spot or a relatively clean spot. The amount of violence we were subjected to on a daily basis, I don't just mean violence directed at us. There was plenty that I went through. But the violence we saw daily, I mean daily, on family members, spouses, children, drug dealers, didn't matter who it was, was mind-boggling. And I don't think anybody in society really comprehends just how violent our society has become. And it has nothing to do with the police. And like I think Jay, you used the term earlier, it's civilian brutality. It's civilian on civilian crime that no one's speaking of. And they can't scapegoat it because normally when you sue these people that are committing the crimes, there's nothing behind it. There's no monetary action they're going to receive. But when, when it's people that want to keep on committing crimes, that want to get away with that don't want to go to jail, that want to pay out, it's very simple to sue the city. So if it was the other way around, it wouldn't work out. But because they have a municipality that just has that, I guess, the historic portion where the second you sue that city, they're going to pay you out, it's become systemic, and that's a problem. And like you said, people just don't understand the reality that police are not the problem. They step in because they're being called to solve a problem. You know, the problems are these communities that just can't get along with one another, and that's why jails were created, to get the bad people off the street so that they could be put away, they could be monitored in kind of like a military-style setting so that they have a regimented day because when they're out in the street, they don't, and they kind of need that guidance. And then when you take these bad guys off the street, they can't harm anybody else so it's not the police once again as i say it it's a never-ending cycle and one of the big differences i see and i policed in baltimore and baltimore is always a, a and maryland in general was always a democratic state democratic run city i mean democratic politicians but people like mayor schaefer people like kurt schmoke both mayors of baltimore they were progressive, they were liberal for their time, but they had a no-nonsense approach to crime, especially violent crime, and they didn't tolerate it. I don't see that with a lot of big city American politicians now. You know, the problem is crime is the disease and the cure is law enforcement, but we are targeting the cure being law enforcement as the disease. The communities of color are under siege. Gun violence and gang violence is rampantly running through these communities. However, people are erroneously targeting law enforcement and not the criminals, and that needs to stop. We need to identify what is festering these communities and take them to a bad place, which is crime, as opposed to targeting law enforcement. So when we go back to what are we going to do moving forward from a societal perspective, we need to identify who the proper suitors are to eradicate this problem that's plaguing our communities, that's crime. And that's where we need to bring the law enforcement practitioners in to invoke a solution that is sound, that brings everybody to a safe place. It's as if our political leaders and I've, I'm, I'm not one who's ever been fond 
of our political leaders, especially on the local level. And I don't care what party they were from. I'm not a big fan of partisan politics, but it's as if they've abandoned their communities, they've abandoned their cities, and all they do is look for plausible deniability. And the first people they blame, and particularly their mayors, is they blame their police departments. And by the way, since we don't have civics in schools anymore, the police departments are part of the executive branch of the government, which is your mayor. Your mayors are the ones who appoint the police chief. Your mayors are the ones who tell them their walking orders, what things are going to be like, and they appoint their command staff, and it goes downhill. If you don't like what's happening in your cities, you got to look at your mayors. We are going to take a short break, return our conversation with Dr. Darren Porcher and Joseph Imperatrice. I promise you, good stuff's coming your way. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by... We have Dr. Darren Porcher, retired NYPD, and also Joseph Imperatrice, who's a, I believe, a sergeant in the NYPD. Earlier, Joseph made a great point. We have three generations of police here. I started in 1980. I'm an old wheel gun cop. We were given a front panel vest only. We were given a 38 revolver and a nightstick and, and, and makes that only worked on innocent bystanders and police. And, and I was trained by primarily combat veterans, there were Vietnam veterans, and we had a few commanders left who were Korean War veterans, and they're phenomenal police. And what we did every day then is now called community policing. So a lot of what I hear being said, especially in the media, social media or otherwise, about community policing, we gotta get back to that, I don't know where it went. Well, a lot of it had to do with the, the strategies that were being enlisted from a com- on a command level. And it's been, I, I give you an example of New York. We had community policing, and then we referred to something that was in the NCO program. But the primary focus of police, um, community policing is that policing community engagement, that ongoing discourse. What that ongoing discourse does, it enables an officer to elicit intelligence for things that are happening within that community, such as who's selling drugs, who's carrying weapons, Weapons, things to that effect. That was an essentially terminal piece for law enforcement because I give you an example. Here in New York, we have eight and a half million citizens, but we only have a police department of 35,000 cops. 38,000 cops pales in comparison to what you can elicit from eight and a half million people. So we had that ongoing relationship that was sound, and it also allowed people the comfort of speaking to an officer in confidence, knowing that that officer will do what's right for that community. As we've progressed, we kind of got away from it. There's been a series of different initiatives that departments have embarked upon that it oftentimes going in different directions. But this is something that was driven by the elected officials. The ranking files or the practitioners have a genuine understanding in how to connect with the community, whereas the politicians generally have a shelf life of four to eight years, and that policy is in and out. And then we start with a newly elected person, and we go with their policies. It's unfortunate, but the one thing about cops is they adapt and they move forward. And there's no other profession like policing where you're able to shoulder the bumps and bruises and still shoulder on and subsequently be successful. One of the 
things that I think separates us from a lot of what's being construed out there by the media is that we may not live in a community where police where we police, but we're part of that community. When when I was given a post, I remember my sergeant at the time telling me, and we had three officers working the same post. We changed shifts, obviously, and in our days off, we'd have one or two other fill-ins. So. People knew our first name. They knew our last name. They gave us nicknames. They'd have cookouts in the summertime in Baltimore. They'd say, hey, come in, have a burger. It was not always hostile. And then sometime in the 1990s, an element from, I want to say the West Coast, came into command in Baltimore, uh, where they were appointed by the mayor, and they said, hey, we're going to change everything to zones. And we're not going to have an officer responsible for crime in a specific area anymore. And people started complaining that they didn't know who their police were anymore. And you said earlier, it was, a, it was a communities where crime was the highest. They were begging us to return. Police departments nationwide are so worried about coming out and saying, well, we're adapting, we're moving forward. And yes, I agree with that. We should. We should develop. We should become innovative. But we also need a, a good mix of old school policing. There's so much stuff that has worked for decades that will continue to work for future decades. So instead of just throwing out the mix and saying we're taking this CPOP cop, this community guy out of the neighborhood, which I think was phenomenal. You know, I think it's better than the stuff that we're seeing nowadays. You had that one or two guys that patrolled the same streets every day. Usually they had a decent amount of time on, just like you said, they had a great relationship. They were invited in for, you know, meals and cookouts and, you know, the people became family. They trusted you, so they gave you the information you needed. But you also then had the crime fighters. That information was passed along to the plainclothes anti-crime units, the conditions units that went after quality of life offenses. So there's this wheel that if you rip off any part of that wheel, it doesn't work. And that's what happens, you know, now that we're seeing in policing, they're taking pieces away and coming up with new names to try to make a name for themselves. And we can't continue to do this. Uh, we need people with common sense. It feels like nowadays you see these police commissioners and chiefs, they don't even speak and think for themselves anymore because they're being told what to do from these civilian politicians that have never walked the beat, that never had to carry a, a dead child or had to see somebody shot in the head or had to run after somebody and not know what's on the other side of that wall. These are people that are speaking not from the harder experience, but from personal opinion. So I think going forward, we need to start getting common sense and people actually with experience to be able to speak and make decisions on things that they know firsthand about. And then actually have elected politicians back them up. What a shocking surprise that would be. Yeah, it would. It would. Yeah, you know, one thing that um, you look at that, that really increased the great divide between police and community and, and, and plagued this acrimony, so to speak, is initially we had the war on, we had the war on poverty. Police were used in that war on poverty. Then it subsequently graduated to the war on crime. Police were heavily used in the war on crime. And then it transitioned into the war on drugs. The same holds true there. Police were being used by default to manage all three of those components. So when you have officers that are trying to function from the perspective of police and community relationship, that binding relationship, it becomes fractured in managing that triangulation of the war against poverty, the war against crime, and the war against uh, on drugs. And so police 
police are just kind of doing what they can to manage it. The average, if you think about it, the average cop offers a 90% of what he or she commits to is service related. Only 10% is enforcement related. But oftentimes the public sees through the, the purview of enforcement as that's what the totality of what an officer's existence is. It's far more multifaceted than that. Joe mentioned that the politicians are ramming these strategies down the throats of a lot of these police executives. That's an unfortunate thing that's happening. I don't know how we can get past that. I just know that one of the things that I've seen as a supervisor is there's the growing sentiment amongst officers that they don't have the backing of the elected officials and the police executives, and they're not as proactive as they've been in the past in terms of seeking out things that are occurring wrongly in the community. And we need to bring that system back together, whereas, as you mentioned, Jay, you had these Vietnam and Korean War vets that knew the job, they knew how to police, and you looked up to these individuals. We just don't have that anymore in the current state of policing. And it just really, it bends my mind into knowing or wondering, where are we going to get that from? Joe, you can speak to that more specific since you're an active duty sergeant. Actually, I'm going to have to cut you off because we're running out of time. We're going to have to have you guys back on because one of the things that I think we need to start doing Remember when all the lip sync videos and dancing videos were the rage and every department was doing it to try to mend bridges? None of that stuff worked. No. We have everyday heroes doing heroic things on police work and we're the first ones to say, I was just doing my job. We need to start highlighting our heroes. Where have our heroes gone? They're still there, they're still working, and they're paying with their lives. Uh, before we go, gentlemen, I you guys are very active. I want to know more about where people get information about uh, Blue Lives Matter NYC. So you can go to our website, bluelivesmatternyc.org. You can buy merchandise. 100% of anything you donate goes to helping the families of law enforcement, whether killed in the line of duty or diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. You can follow us on Facebook, Blue Lives Matter hyphen NYC. We got the Andrew Wing logo. We're on Twitter at Blue Lives NYC. Uh, we're really active in the community. We just donated $27,000 to a detective with 21 years on whose wife was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Uh, we do fundraisers all throughout the year. Uh, Constantly just trying to find a way to give the cops some kind of a positive light to keep moving forward, but more importantly, to remember our heroes that have been lost in the line of duty. Not lost, but had their lives taken from them in the line of duty. That's the most important thing. And you also have a, a podcast. What's that called? It's Crossing the Line. We got our good friend, Darren Porcher. He's a star on Fox. Uh, great. Every Friday night, we tape it. We've had Chaz Palminteri. We've had uh, Vito from The Sopranos on. Um, you know, a lot of good, good people speaking about what's going on in society, not just police-related, but in general, how to change it. We go out. Darren's known for taking clips, actually going out there in the forefront, right into the battle zone. Uh, really good stuff. Just like this, with your show, you're able to see a different perspective that on regular media, outlets you might not be able to see. Yeah, I just want to add one more thing. Every Friday at 1900, which is 7 p.m. for the civilian population, mm -hmm. go to the Blue Lives Matter website and look for the show Crossing the Line, and you will see our podcast. Once again, 7 p.m. every Friday, Crossing the Line. Go to Blue Lives Matter on Facebook, and you'll see our podcast. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being guests on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so Thanks much for having us. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. 
The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.